Hi, I'm at Frederick's apartment in Stockholm. My name is Reese Fulber. I'm a music producer and musician um, from Canada. And I've been making records for my entire adult life. And I'm here to talk with Frederick about it. I'm so sorry, because I just realized that I've mispronounced your name for it's okay. 35 it's okay. years. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's, it's Fulber. it's not it, Riz Fulber. It's Riz, yeah, because it's a, it's a Welsh name. And your mother was from Wales, right? No, my mother is, she's, she's Canadian, but she's British. Her brothers were born in, in Burslem in Staffordshire. And, you know, for whatever reason, I got a Welsh um, name. My father is from Dusseldorf, Germany. So I have both of those sides in me. And um, my sister got German names and I got English names. My sister's name is Sabina. So she got the German names. I got the English names. Speaking of Germany, I, I saw this picture on Instagram um, last August where you went to Munich and you visited the grave of uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Reiner yeah. Fassbinder. I love Fassbinder, yeah. I had to do it, you know. I When I was younger and I would be on the road, I, I wasn't really paying attention to, you know, we were just like doing the gigs and we were, you know, partying, having a good time. And, and now... <clears throat> I'm way more like thinking about wh where I am and what's there. And I'm like, okay, what's in Munich? Oh, Fassbinder's great. That would be cool. I got, you know, it's like thinking of fun things to do when you're in different cities, going to galleries. And so it's a little more like, uh, more, it's, it's more of a cultural trip now. It's, uh, it's different than it was you know, before, and I, I got really into photography the last few years. So I make it all like a, a try and do my little photo essays of wherever I go. And, and so I, you know, I got really into Fassbinder the last few years and just, it was just on my mind. So I had to go, you know, I thought it would be. Which I, is your favorite Fassbinder movie? Probably Chinese Roulette. I love Chinese Roulette. He was a huge Kraftwerk fan. Oh yeah, because that song is in, Chinese roulette. There's a there's like a climactic scene where the girl and her caretaker start dancing to Radioactivity, which would have been a new record at the time. And it, uh, I got to be honest, if it didn't make me like well up a little bit when that scene came on. <laughs> I, I read in, I think it was in Carl Barthes's book where he writes about how Fassbinder forced his entire crew to listen to Kraftwerk for hours and hours. <laughs> uh, that's great. I mean, I have a connection to Kraftwerk because I, my father's from Dusseldorf. I was born in Canada, but soon after we went back to Germany and when I was small, we lived in a place called Fiesen near Mönchengladbach. And so my f father's younger brother went to the Kunstakademie in Dusseldorf with Boyce and Gerhard Richter. And so my dad and my uncle were around all of that stuff and all the scene in Dusseldorf and everything. And the music that was happening and you know, he, my father even told me a story of Boyce making fun of him and his brother for doing, oh, what are you guys doing? That little light show thing for bands? Oh, that's cute. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and, um, and then we get back to Canada and, you know, I don't remember any of that. My memories didn't start coming in until maybe I was like three or four years old. And we had Autobahn, the album. And 
when they they actually played in Vancouver, I'm thinking it's like 1975 or something because I looked it up and my parents took me. So I remember the concerts. My first memory of a concert was Kraftwerk with the neon signs. Florian had a flute and the electric drums because I was already into music from like square one. So I liked the electric drums. So that stayed with me. And people don't believe me when I say that. It was like, what was your first concert? And I go, it's Kraftwerk. 1975. <laughs> like, yeah, I was like a little kid. I was tiny, I'm, I, but I remember it. Because I thought it was later than it was. I thought it was like 76 or something, but I think I was four, but I remember it. And, um, and I looked it up online because I remember there was a regular rock band opening and I looked it up and it was a band called the Stampeders who were like this Canadian regular rock and roll band. And so I, that's still, I still remember it. It's like it was in the uh, fairground exhibition area where they had like this uh, kind of like a dome where they would have like cattle shows in the, uh, you know, the national exhibition or something, like agriculture shows. And that was, that was the venue uh, or as the garden or something, but it was where they have the uh, annual fair there. Because um, Vancouver used to be like kind of a frontier city. It was like a, a port city at the end of the railway, basically. So it used to be much more frontier back then. And the fact that they even showed up and played there was pretty wild. But at the same time, I learned years later from my my father that him and my mom saw the Velvet Underground in Vancouver. They saw the doors to 35 people. They, you know, so there was the Yardbirds. So my dad saw Led Zeppelin in 69. So, I mean, there was a few people that came up there. But back in those days, it was still a pretty frontier place. Vancouver didn't become like the cosmopolitan place probably till the late 80s when they started shooting TV shows there. And then it kind of blossomed the entire city. Your parents bringing you to a Kraftwerk concert in 1975, that's some great parenting right there. I, I mean, that's it, amazing. it seems like I'm making it up. You know, it's one of those things where people would think that can't be true and it's 100% true. So, and it stuck with me, but I didn't get into electronic music till later. I was, I, my dad was playing, my dad used to play in like rock bands, like cover bands, just playing and go up into you know, the north of British Columbia where it's pretty rough and play like in little, you know, logging towns just playing. And they used to get paid quite well. And they had a keyboard player named Jack Dudich who also became a, um, like a technician for repairing equipment. And he had a mini Moog because they used to play Emerson, Lake and Palmer and stuff. So I remember being like six and seven years old and checking out his mini Moog and thinking this is like such a neat, cool thing. But I started playing drums early, like from when I was around that age, I started playing drums before I could hit the pedals. And that was, you know, I grew up in a rock and roll house. The dining room was a jam space. So it was just always there. And, you know, I had, the, the, when I used to play ice hockey, the kids I played with would say, oh yeah, you live in the weird house, you know, because they'd come to my house with the Moroccan lamps and the beads hanging in the doorway and everything. So I lived in like what I imagined Chris Robinson from the Black Crows house to look like is kind of what I grew up in. It's funny with, with Kraftwerk and the success that they had with Autobahn in the US, I, I read somewhere that, that a lot of Americans misheard the lyrics and thought that they sang fun, fun, fun on the Autobahn, yeah. not fun, fun, fun. And yeah. that gave them a more like joyous vibe of the song. So they, yeah. they made them think of the Beach Boys. Absolutely, yeah. We'll get, we'll get to the Beach Boys later. I got a connection <laughs> to that now too. <laughs> but your paternal grandfather was from Germany, right? Yeah, my father's side's German. Yeah. And he, he 
left Germany and went to Canada and jumped off a ship. Uh, basically, was that my, before the war? Or was this it, is during the war. During my, the war. my great-grandfather was a Christian socialist and they had a commune in Dusseldorf that's sort of kind of still there. There's like a group of houses. And he said, I, I do not want my son to serve in that uniform. I want you to get on a ship and just go. And so he went and they were in Texas for a minute. And then he jumped off a ship in Canada and I think Vancouver Island. And then they found him, some random German walking around. They sent him to a prison camp in Ontario somewhere. And he was a musician too. He played horn and he played violin. So he spent the war at a camp doing farm work basically. But they had a radio that played um, American, they had a, um, American radio there playing all the hits of the day, big band. And, and he would write down charts. So he had a little catalog of, of the hits. So after the war, he goes back to Germany. He puts a little band together and he has a hustle. He can make a little money playing for GIs and stuff like because he knew the tunes. He had the charts. So he had that going on. But I think eventually it was just, it's just difficult times. And he had been to Canada before. And after my aunt and my father were born at some point, they're like, you know, we should go back there. There's more work. And that's sort of, um, that was it. And then, but then later on, everyone kept going back and forth and stuff like that, like down the road. I read on Facebook, I think it was your uncle who wrote something about your grandfather being called Fast Freddy Fulber. Oh, yeah, he was, was, he was kind of a hustler. He was like, he was just a guy that would, he was a salesman. He played cards. He was just, you know, one of those kind of guys. He was just always looking for the next thing, you know what I mean? And uh, and he would still play, he would still play music, but uh, I don't know if it was necessarily the best lifestyle because I just know my dad's side of the family moved around a lot all over British Columbia and I, I think it was tough, you know, so always looking for the next thing, you know. Your father built this music studio in Vancouver where some punk groups played? I yes, think? there was a studio in Vancouver called Profile that some people around the city would know And my father and the guy he used to be in a band with, this guy named Bill Barker, was the guitar player in my dad's cover band. And then they mutated into a punk band, like around 1980, 81. And then they built this studio. And yeah, people started recording there. And I used to hang out there and um, just vacuum or just sit with the punks. And I think I was like 11 or something. And I used to... Just, did, you, yeah, like, just, did you become a punk yourself? Well, I mean... I mean, the other kids at school thought so um, because I kind of wore different clothes than they did. But yeah, that's where my obsession with music really kicked in, where I was like Buzzcocks and Vibrators, 999, Pistols, Clash, all that. To this day, the Buzzcocks are still my favorite band. They were my favorite band when I was 11 and they're still my favorite band now. What happened was I was obsessed with Buzzcocks. I felt like it spoke to me. It was my music. And then when I was about 12, I heard the Homo Sapien record. And then I was like, no, wait a minute. This is the sound. This is, this is, what, I, this is what I want to hear.
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. funny when I listen to it now, it kind of reminds me of this 90s song called Bohemian Like You that Dandy Warhol's recorded. That's it had a massive hit with that song, but uh, never mind. It's, I mean, uh, it's it's basically the precursor to the Human League, that song, I think, um, with Martin Russian, the same producer. I think it was supposed to be uh, Buzzcocks demos, and then they just were like, you know what, this sounds pretty good as is. And uh, I'm sure by that point, the band maybe was getting sick of each other too. And so then he's like, we're just going to roll with this. But I think Homo Sapien to me is just such a fantastic record. It's got these existential lyrics. It's just, it's just so many, it's, to me, it's a really underrated record. I think it's a, just, it just it's, even though I was only like 11 or 12 when I heard it, I didn't fully get the lyrics, but just something about the music and the emotion just really spoke to me. And then I just wanted to get a synthesizer and I stopped playing drums. I used to be serious about drums and stuff. So you Did take you play jazz drums lessons. in a band or anything? I played drums with some, I don't want to call it a band. It was me and um, like three uh, Croatian friends. They're all Croatian because there was a lot of Croatian immigrants in my neighborhood. And we made like a band and we played like a, I think we played two parties playing like Joy Division songs and like one original and um, and I remember I started wanting to bring the synthesizer and put it beside my drum kit to do things on it. And the guitar player got really like annoyed. And I'm like, you know, I don't I don't want to do this. I just want to go by myself. And then at that point, I just sat in my basement. Um, yeah, my dad got me a synth, obviously. Um, and then I got a drum machine. I just sat in my basement and I got an architecture and morality songbook from the OMD album. It's another album I love. And I just learned all the songs. I could still read music a little bit from school. And I just sat there learning the architecture morality album. That's kind of how I learned to play synth. And um, and then here's the Swedish connection. I had a family friend who's a little older than me named Christian Maloney. His father was a friend of my parents who moved to Sweden, had a Swedish wife and their son 
Christian would come over to Canada to visit his Canadian relatives. And then we kind of became friends. And then he started playing me this music I'd never heard before. Like he played me Depeche Mode. I knew OMD. I didn't know Depeche Mode. He might've been the first one to tell me about Front 242. And really, you got that stuff from a Swedish guy? Yeah, from what, what happened to him, a Christian? I still talk to him. He's in Gothenburg. He's the, um, he was a teacher, and I think now he's some sort of uh, planner or something. I'm not sure. But, but we started... So he also had a synth, and we kind of messed around a little bit. And um, But he turned me on to all this other music, and then I kind of got more into it. And then... Skinny Puppy kind of starts happening in Vancouver. How did you first hear about them? Well, because they're a Vancouver band. Vancouver is not that big a city back then. And this, this, I mean, Kevin used to be in a new wave band called Images in Vogue, who were quite popular. They supported Duran Duran, and they were quite a known band. And I knew their music, and I liked some of their songs, because back then, I got so into electronic music that anytime I would hear something with like a synth or a drum machine, you go, okay, what's that? Because back then it was still kind of a novelty. Like I remember when I w- w- heard like Rational Youth, right? Like Saturday in Silesia. And you're like, oh, I got to f- find that record. And because you, you hear the 808 drum machine, your ears immediately go, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. You know, or Fade to Grey by Visage. Or you, you would just hear these songs and you just like, that's, that's the sound. That's the sound. Because it was still not typical. And um, so then Skinny Puppy made noise because it was the guy, Kevin was in Images in Vogue. That was the, and so they just, suddenly everyone's talking about this new band because they had played around town and they had a crazy stage show. And, and then I heard their record and I was like, this is, this is incredible. Like this is, this is like punk and electronic and it's just like, and it's got like this edgy material because I was always kind of into subversive material even as like, you know, pretty young kid. And, um, it just hit all the spots. And then at that point, I kind of just stopped going to school for whatever reason. I used to just, I don't know. I just suddenly couldn't relate to anything. I went to uh, kind of a rough school. I didn't really fit in there. And I just started spending all my time at the library and the music store playing with synthesizers. So one day I'm downtown Vancouver and I think I was carrying my drum machine. I don't know, for whatever reason, I was going somewhere and I ran into Bill and Kevin and they're like looking at me like, what's this kid doing with a drum machine? So they start talking to me, hey, what are you doing? Like, oh, you know, nothing. And Bill used to work at a clothing store, like the alternative clothing store on the main shopping street. And I mean, I knew who they were because Skinny Puppy looked like they did on stage all the time. They had their hair, (laughs) they're they're all like, you know, one meter 95, they're big guys, right? So they would really stick out. So I used to go in the clothing store and be like, hey, that's the guy from Skinny Puppy. It was Bill, right? So I just started talking to him because I wanted to know, you know, about the band. And then we would just talk and I used to go in there all the time. And then he made me like a mixtape, which I still have somewhere with like Portion Control and Leibach and SBK and Legendary Pink Dots and all this stuff. And so... That's now I'm all of a sudden buying all these records and getting really deep into what's underneath Skinny Puppy. And I'm standing in there. So Remission Records out. Everyone's wearing the T-shirt around town. They're like a pretty hot band, right? And I'm down there hanging out with Bill. This is a a little bit after the Bites record. Um, And I've actually seen Skinny Puppy with Bill still in the band, right? I think his last gig with them. And me and all my friends went. It was kind of a big deal. What was that like, seeing them live? It was incredible. I mean, their show was... I don't know, just, 
I mean, I've seen a lot of bands, but the way they, they just had a, they just put on a big show and they weren't really a big band yet, but they put on a big show and they had a lot of people helping them. They had a stage set that was built. I mean, when I think back, it's actually pretty incredible the amount of effort they went into just for one show, you know, and um, it was just, and the music was fantastic. It was original. It didn't sound like anything. It just, the way it all just came out of the speakers, it's dramatic, all the little, like, old movie samples. It just had this really interesting vibe to it. And so I'd seen them, I'm hanging around, the Bites record comes out, it's amazing. And I'm down at the shop one day talking to Bill. Kevin comes into the shop and it's the first time I kind of meet him other than the drum machine encounter. And he's, Bill's like, so what are you doing? He's like, oh, we were in the studio last night at Mushroom, the studio. And we, we, you know, we got a new, we got a, a new song we just did last night. And Bill's like, oh, really? Do you have a tape? In those days, everyone would say, oh, do you have a tape? You know, a cassette. And he goes, yeah. And he goes, let's put it on because there's no one in the shop. And he puts on Dig It. And I'm 15 and I'm standing there trying to be cool. You know, just like this is normal, right? Yeah, yeah. And I hear Dig It and I'm like, what is happening right now? Like, what? This is, this is like, it just seems so out of this world. Like it seems so cutting edge. I, 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 it was just hard to describe. And I'm just like, like I said, standing there, just, just being cool, not really saying anything. But in my mind, I'm going like, this is, this is incredible. This is, this is, I want to do this. Whatever this is, I want to be part of this. still feels so fresh I know. That, that specific track because it's got this slow burning intensity oh. it doesn't sound like you know when a lot of industrial bands came out and they tried to be as brutal as, as possible this is something else it's well it's the groove because kevin's a fantastic drummer and has he is if you listen to the old skinny puppy records he's got very original drum beats and they have this feel to them and it's yeah it's a very it's just a unique angle and I know it's also because of the kind of music he listens to which is like crowd rock dub reggae and all this stuff so he's got this sense of rhythm that a lot of people in that scene I don't think really had it's not the, like the four to the floor beat at all no it almost never is it's it's just always has this unique feel and and like I said when I first heard that I was like my god this is this is really something and it, it has the same impact now as it did then it's just a fantastic record I have a friend in Paris who loves Skinny Puppy, and the first time he heard them, he started bleeding from his nose. You know, he just, <laughs> his nose just kept bleeding. I'm going to share that, that one. That was some kind of uh, like you know, the intensity of the music, also like the, the visceral effect. Of it, it is. It's intense, and the shows were intense. Like all the live shows back that I saw in Vancouver in the '80s, they were all intense, and and it was just it was such an all encompassing experience, you know. And then um, so. Around the dig it time, I mean, Bill had already sort of kind of left the group a little bit and he started making his own music and he was selling the nerve work cassette at the shop. And then he invited me to come over because I think at this point I had gotten a Mirage sampling keyboard and, you know, I, I you know, my dad got it for me or what, you know, like I, you know, it's like when people make fun of like, you know, some of these like, you know, 
trust fund musicians where their dad bought them equipment. And I'm like, yeah, wait, wait, wait a minute. I think I had that too, right? <laughs> your, your dad had a whole studio, right? <laughs> yeah. So he got me the Mirage and it was very hard to use, I remember. But I was, again, I was messing around with stuff and Bill invites me over because I have this cool keyboard. And then so we start just jamming with his little Porta studio and we did some stuff for the Total Terror cassette. But, you know, keep in mind, I'm like, I'm like 16 years old. I look like Tilda Swinton, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I'm serious. And and so I was just kind of, you know, messing around with Bill, but then he got Michael Balch in, who's older than me. He's been in bands, he's more professional, and they start kind of doing the frontline thing, and which I understood. So I kind of started my own little industrial group with my roommate, and we uh, it was called Aborted, which is an awful name. Uh, Aborted. Uh, Aborted. It's just, Aborted. I think there's a death metal band called that now. It's an awful name. I hate even saying it out loud, but that's what we decided to call ourselves. And he went to art school in Vancouver. He went to the Emily Carr College of Art and Design. So we did like some little art school event, just, you know, like old school industrial, because that's all we listened to. Just him shouting, me playing a synth and with distorted drums. And, and so that, project kind of morphed into that will project I did, um, which never performed live. Me and John had just done a couple little gigs under that name. And then Frontline had started getting some steam going with some of their earlier releases that Bill did with Michael getting signed to Third Mind. And then they do the Gash Senses record. And then there's a tour. And they said, well, we need maybe another guy on stage. Um, you know, we, I think they knew I was a drummer. So they said, do you want to come and play percussion? And of course I go, absolutely. So I'm 18 years old and I'm out on the road in Europe. Um, and that's kind of where it started. And then we did Europe and we did America. And um, it went pretty well considering our first tour. And, and also that whole EBM scene was was pretty happening at the time. It was like, it was something new. And when something's new, it, it picks up a lot of kind of energy around it. You know, the clubs are playing it and there was like a bit of a thing going on. Then Wax Tracks put out the records in America. Wax Tracks really started getting a lot of momentum at that time. And Michael Balch, who was, you know, the more professional, uh, proper musician, everything, who's doing these records with Bill, he suddenly gets pulled into the ministry vortex which was this weird vortex people seemed to get eaten by where they would hang out in Chicago and do drugs with Al and all of a sudden they're consumed in the ministry vortex or whatever. So he's now in the vortex. You know, a band is heading in a strange direction when people start talking about the band as a vortex. <laughs> it's kind of what it was, <laughs> That's right? just something that devours people. It, it, it kind of, well, it's kind of true. It did devour people and, and a lot of people were worse off when they came out. So... Bill calls me. At this point, I'm working at Starbucks in Vancouver. Right? <laughs> so Kevin from Skinny Puppy's coming in. I'm giving him coffee and I'm thinking, you know what? I just want to do that. I just want to be the guy who just does the band for a living. I, you don't have to be rich or famous, just, just to be able to do music. That's, that's all I want to do. That's what I want to get to. Bill calls me and says, I don't know where Michael is and we have to make a new album. Can you come over? Absolutely. When do you want me there, right? So I quit my shift at Starbucks, basically. I go over to Bill's. I have to learn how to use the Atari computer while we're making the record, basically, because I'd never used it. I'd used it before, but not their software. And with the Akai samplers, we got a little setup in Bill's bedroom. 
And we basically do Costa Grip in like maybe five weeks. And while I'm working at Starbucks, then we go into the first time into a pr- big professional studio with Greg Reilly, SSL mixing desk, and we bang out Costa Grip in like nine days of mixing after the pre-programming and um, Isolate was one of the sort of premier tracks off that. There's a picture that you put on Instagram, a very cute picture of you in Los Angeles on your first visit to LA. I think you're 15 or 16. Oh, yeah. And you're yeah, standing yeah. in your room at the Shangri-La Hotel and you're wearing what looks like a uh, like a Joy Division bootleg t-shirt. Yes. With a, it says Dante's Inferno. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. a Gustave Dore picture. Yeah. Um, you look so innocent. Well, that's when I started. That's when I met Bill. That's that's the stuff. That's That's when that all was going down. I went to... My father had to go to Los Angeles and pick up his brother's car, which was that Lincoln. And we drove that Lincoln, 65 Lincoln, kind of almost like the one JFK was shot in. And we drove it back. And so I went down with him and I'd, I'd never, I'd been to Seattle, but I'd never been further. And um, um, and I was in California in, at, at that time. And I was like, this is, this is amazing. They had better radio. They're playing like psychedelic furs and, you know, cool music on the radio. And I bought a Cabaret Voltaire t-shirt and I'm like, this is so cool. So yeah, I wore that and I wore my Psychic TV t-shirt. I went to see Psychic TV in Seattle, I think in 1988, incredibly disappointing show, but I bought the t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so they weren't any good live? It was. It wasn't a show. It was a installation. Oh. They had like a pile of TVs, and they had these sounds, and it wasn't like we thought it was a concert. We we go all the way down to Seattle, and it's more like an installation or something. Uh, it was called Stations of the Cross, and it was like, what, what the what what is this? You know, like we were expecting to see like more of a live show. So I don't think it was uh, advertised properly. So I know some people who joined their like the cult of psychic tv what was a temple of psychic youth yes the temple of psychic youth and to apply for membership you had to like masturbate oh, on a so piece stupid. of paper and yeah my my friend didn't know how to masturbate <laughs> so he couldn't join <laughs> i mean thinking back it's all sort of silly at the time i was really into all that stuff i thought it was so edgy and cool and and but looking back it's all a little silly <laughs> I mean, SBK was the group. SBK and Portion Control were my two favorites of that era. Um, uh, Throbbing Gristle I liked, but it didn't speak to me the way SBK and Portion Control. Like um, One of my prized industrial collections in my industrial record collection is I have an autographed SBK record because I wrote Gray Marvell a letter when I was like 16 or something. Which, which one? Licensed or Decompositions, the EP. And he sent me back an autograph, like personalized autograph copy. So that's pretty cool. Let's play a track from it. Uh, 
I remember how, you know, at least from a Swedish perspective, there was this great sense of mystery surrounding Skinny Puppy and Frontline Assembly. Because you came from Vancouver, that was far away. And you put this image in my head of Vancouver as this like blade runnery city with uh, skyscrapers and lots of rain and neon lights and Japanese influences. So I, you know, a bit like the Los Angeles that you see in Blade Runner from which you said in the year 2019. And then when, when the year 2019 came around, I was a bit disappointed that that future kind of never happened. You know, know, I always assumed that the future would look exactly like the Mind Phaser video. <laughs> you know, that's how <laughs> yeah. life would be. But, but it never really, no. you know, technology is so invisible. I know. I mean, there's a, there's a smidgen of truth because old Vancouver did have a lot of neon and it had a big Chinatown. So you had a lot of Chinese neon signs and it was dark and rainy. So there's a little bit of truth in that, but... It was very frontier, like I said. It, it didn't have that mo modern feel. It was like, uh, yeah, it was like the end of the railway from like, you know, some old, you know, the gold rush boom or whatever. But it did have the rain and it did have a lot of neon, which sadly is mostly gone. Um, Vancouver didn't do a very good job of maintaining its original identity the way San Francisco has, because San Francisco still has a lot of that old stuff in it. And Vancouver was sort of a small version of that, but they let it all be consumed by the gods of real estate. And it's just, it's a shame. Like Chinatown is not what it used to be. It's not as, you know, all those great old signs are gone. Um, it, it really, the only way you can sort of see that is if you look at, there's a couple photographers I really like that have uh, uh, their photography books of old Vancouver from like the 60s and 70s. And then you can, and when you look back and you see it, you go, yeah, this was actually kind of a cool place. Of course, when I was a kid, I hated it and I wanted to get out of there because I went to visit my family in Germany in 1984 and it, I was like, oh my God, I gotta, this is, I gotta be over here. This is the stuff I like. Everything's happening over there, over here. And then I go back to Canada and it's like, oh, this is so depressing and dreary. So I didn't appreciate the time, but looking back, it's like, you know, it was kind of a, definitely had a cool vibe. Bill Lieb in Frontline Assembly speaks German because he was born in Vienna, right? Yeah, Bill's Austrian, yeah. He's Austrian, yeah. And yeah, he's you speak Austrian. German too. He speaks German, yeah. But what about you? Did your My, parents... I don't speak German, and but I can... What's the best way? I can function. If I have to use grammar, I can't do much. But if I can, or, I can order food, I can handle hotel stuff. I can do small transactions with numbers. And I know a lot of words. I grew up with the language but I can't put them together. And my cousin who lives in Berlin, who I stay with when I'm over here, he, he, he's the same as me. We grew up with a German family in Canada. Everyone speaks German when they're arguing behind the children, but no one taught us the language. But we know words because people in the house would use a, uh, the German word for the noun and then everything's in English. So I know a lot of words, I just can't put them together. So it's... And, you know, at this, over the years, you know, I've spent so much of my adult life in Germany, you'd think I would have uh, <laughs> finally spoken it, but in the music business, just all in English. And so I feel comfortable in Germany. I know enough of the language to like get around and do stuff, but I can't have a conversation. How did your parents feel about you hanging out with much older guys and going on tour? Did think, they worry at all? I think my mom wasn't crazy about it. I think my dad thought it was okay but my dad wanted to make sure I was going to be taken care of, like financially, especially. And he made sure once Frontline started getting to that point, 
that you know you got to be on the contract you got to be in on the the action and so he, did, did your mom worry that you would be sucked into the ministry vortex no like, she didn't no. know about that because no. my parents split up and then i ended up just living with my dad um when i first started hanging out with bill my mom was wondering why i'm hanging out with older people my dad understood because i because even when i was 12 playing drums i would play with guys in their 20s when they needed a drummer for rehearsal, like punk bands my dad knew, I would fill in for playing drums. So I was already playing with people way older than me. So my dad got it. My mom was being a mom and she wasn't totally comfortable, but I think my my dad knew what I was going for. He was like, you know, he wants to do this. And and um, he so he got it. But he again, he he wanted to make sure that when money was being made that I'm going to be taken care of. And, and that was actually one re, one good thing he did because after Costa Grip kind of started making some noise, we got in Melody Maker, we got a single of the week, which at the time was kind of a big deal, right? It's, it's more, you know, main, mainstream alternative, I guess you could say. Um, then we got a publishing deal and I got some money and then I could quit Starbucks and then I could just focus on, you know, being in the band and everything. Skinny Puppy got some severe drug problems in the yes the mid nineties when uh, I'd say I'd say it started about nineteen ninety three ninety four and honestly it was a Vancouver problem it was the whole Vancouver in some ways was quite similar to Seattle because um, in Seattle the same thing was happening with a lot of the grunge guys and and it's just it's a port city it was there it was strong because it hadn't been cut and distributed and everyone was getting into it. I would go to parties. It would be there. It like was heroin, just not heroin. Not, heroin would be everywhere. Okay. And Bill and I didn't get into it. We're like, we just made records. We stayed out of it. But I mean, I you had know, to, most, most people who, even people who are into drugs, don't mess around with heroin. Everyone, they was, know that, everyone was into it. And I had to change my entire group of friends because a lot of my friends got strung out. I, I, I just couldn't be around it anymore. And I just kind of closed ranks with Bill and we just made frontline noise unit, whatever. We started doing the delirium thing. We just, we just, just worked. And I think after tactical neural implant, third mind got picked up by Roadrunner Records and then, which was predominantly a metal label. So now we're kind of in this other zone of the music business. And then that's where the Fear Factory remixes came in because they wanted industrial remixes. So Roadrunner went, why don't you get these guys? And then after that, I actually did a Motley Crue session on that Quaternary record for the solo Nikki Six track. So that was the first time I got to do something outside, like as a hired What was that like? It was super cool. It was surreal. I'm hanging around with like Motley Crue all of a sudden and I'm like 23 or something and I'm not very cool and very rock and roll back then. So, you know, but, um, you know, my father knew Bob Rock from the punk scene because he was kind of part of the punk scene in Vancouver. So he was like, hey, you know, my kid could do that if you need a guy to run the samplers. And so, um, yeah, he he got me in there and... Um, and Motley Crue weren't on heroin anymore at that point. No, they right. were they were clean. They, they, they were clean. So And also Vancouver, so I, I think a lot of people don't realize Vancouver was a big studio city. Like Little Mountain Sound was where Aerosmith, Bon Jovi, like they made tons of big rock and roll records in Vancouver. So 
we always loosely were connected to that because like when we mixed Costa Grip, we had Queensryche loading in their equipment when we're wrapping up. So Vancouver really? was always- Queensryche? Yeah, I think they were doing that Empire's record. They were loading in when we're quickly trying to finish at eight in the morning after being up all night. Because Vancouver was like, it was a big studio city. So it, it's great that you managed to like, you know, not get involved with the whole drug thing because oh. it was a, such a big problem with the ministry. Oh. Even with Nine Inch Nails, it's a and, with, and then Dwayne believes replacements, or then, mean, then Dwayne Goddle, who yeah, replaced Dwayne, Bill in Skinny Puppet, died from an overdose. Dwayne was the one I didn't understand because he was such a sweet kind of guy. He he didn't have that edgy kind of rock and roll personality. He he was he was sort of a, a introverted, um, sensitive kind of guy, and and I don't know. He just got pulled in and. And there was a lot of stress going on in that band. They were on a big record deal. They're having problems. I think they weren't making the music Rick Rubin wanted. And there was all kinds of stuff. And I think the pressure just got to all those guys. I remember when Nybeck Ogre, when, when Kevin ended up in a hospital in Malmö in, south of, in the south of Sweden with hepatitis A. Ugh. He was on tour with Pigface, this other you know, yeah, insane project. Face, yeah. So he, he spent like a couple of weeks in the hospital in Malmö. And the fans would come up to his hospital bed and bring like little skeletons that they pieced together. It was sort of cute, but it, then he, you know, it's okay now, I, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it, that was just, yeah, we're, we're lucky. We, we, I mean, Bill's always been a pretty healthy guy. He's athletic, always takes care of himself. I actually learned a lot from Bill now that I'm getting older on how to take care of yourself and like how to stay healthy. And, you know, on the road, Bill was always very moderate. I did all my excesses early, like when I was young, and kind of got it out of my system a little bit. So I've, I've learned more from Bill over the years with like how to maintain, how to take care of yourself. There was a lot of talk about cyberpunk, like the cyberpunk movement in the early 90s. And I guess the Frontline Assembly was the group that was, you know, quite connected to it in, in a way, even it, though that was like a literary movement yeah. from the start. It was like the books of William Gibson. Well, it, yeah, we were connected to it just by virtue of the image, like the tactical neural implant sleeve. The, but we didn't really, like I hadn't read William Gibson. I didn't, we sort of just sort of went, eh, yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> like, all right. But we didn't really, I mean, we liked that kind of imagery, you know, the, the you know, those kind of movies, Alien, Blade Runner, all that stuff, of course. But <clears throat> we would be, you know, fibbing if we said, yeah, we're right on point with the uh, the cyberpunk movement. Um, we, I, we were more David Cronenberg than William Gibson. That's more what we were into. I always expected like the virtual reality to become a big thing oh, yeah. in the 90s. And then it just never happened. And then when it does happen, like now, 30 years later, it's not as cool as I wanted it to be. It's video games. It's just Everything video games. is video games. But you, you, you contributed with two tracks to the cyberpunk... Uh, 2077 game, right? Yes. But you haven't played it? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no I don't play video games. I, my son does, but I don't. <laughs> no, I mean, I just asked my son, how's the game? Oh, there's a lot of bugs. I don't know. I only played it twice. <laughs> so <laughs> I have no idea. You know, I got him a copy. That was about it. Uh, I, you know, see the problem when I was doing the music, because I didn't really know what I was doing music for. I just kind of had to like, visualize what it, I hadn't seen anything. So I just was like, yeah, I mean, I think this, I just sort of just did the kind of music I was doing at the time. It was a little frustrating because I actually did, I think I did like six pieces total and they only chose the two I did quite quickly. 
And then after they chose those two, I decided to work on some more involved pieces and they didn't, they turned them all down and we were all getting confused as to what they were looking for because the music supervisor who was in between me and the game company started getting frustrated. It's like, you want industrial, we got the guy, like what's going on, right? But I used most of the tracks on one of my solo records called Nostalgia. One of them ended up on a frontline record. So they found homes, but so it's all okay, you know, but um, it's, it's, you know, because I had initially moved to Los Angeles. This is fast forwarding a bit because I had representation to do uh, composing for film and TV. So that's why I initially moved to LA um, because of the Conjure One project because they heard that and they went, maybe you should do this. So I went down there and I was in it for a minute. And then, you know, when your agent leaves the company, like when a band loses their A&R person, you're sort of just in limbo a little bit. And I didn't have the hustle to follow it through and I was producing. So I was kind of like, I think I'll just keep producing, which in hindsight could have been a mistake. But at the same time, if you want to get become a composer, it's kind of all you have to, you can have to focus on just doing that. You don't really have room for being an artist anymore. We're set up doing, you know, frontline, everything's rolling. And we had done this side project called Delirium, which was initially just, you know, Bill and I like ambient music, so we wanted to do something ambient. So we'd made a few of these, you know, pretty kind of like industrial method records where you make sort of like these weird records, you put them out, you know, kind of very much the way the industrial scene was. And then we move into this studio, the same studio I did the Motley Crue thing, and we're right next door to Network Records. Now, we've never been on network records before. Skinny Puppy was, but we'd always released elsewhere. And then Bill suddenly wanted to change Delirium. And I think he'd heard like William Morbid and Enigma and a few things. And I think we should maybe do something more like that. So we start messing around with some like the more commercial Delirium. And we get a singer from a network band, Christy, uh, Christy Thirsk. And... Then we bring the record to Network and they like it, they release it, and it becomes this sort of weird sleeper hit record with, in Canada anyway. They did a video, it gets on the video channel, and we start getting some momentum with this Delirium project now that we've kind of, you know, made it a little more um, commercial, I guess. And the, the Flowers Become Screen song, I think it's the first time I played major chords on something we did. So it just right away changes the whole feeling. And so that record actually does quite well. We made it cheaply. It, it, it yeah, sold way more than anyone expected. So we go to make the follow-up record in a similar style, a little more refined. And we're using some of the same singers we'd used before. Um, people on the network label, um, uh, Jackie from Single Gun Theory, Christy Thirsk again. And Network's new big signing, Sarah McLaughlin. And they're like, uh, we'd love to get, you know, we think Sarah should sing on the record. And we're like, okay, cool. So we have this one song we kind of did, um, which we, we, we didn't really think about the time. We just did the song, you know, we just kind of wrote this sort of moody song. And we were like, well, maybe we send this one to 
for Sarah, and we send it to the label, and we keep hearing back how, yeah, Sarah doesn't really, she can't really come up with anything. There's nothing in the song she can really get into, and okay, that's fine. So we'll we'll um, we'll just keep it instrumental. That's cool. So we're in the studio mixing the record, and we're mixing this song, and all of a sudden she shows up at the studio. She goes, "I got something. I got something." Uh, just like put up a mic, and. She goes in there and she's at the piano and she starts singing and then she wants to start changing some parts and some chords and we're like, this is pre-Pro Tools and we're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, uh, I don't, uh, that, that would be a lot of work. We got everything kind of on tape already. We have the Atari computer. Uh, it, uh, can you just sing to what's there? So she just sings to what's there. We mix it. No one's really thinking much of anything, and we put out the record. It's not even the lead single. The Euphoria, I think, was the lead single, and the record's you know doing what it's doing. It's doing all right, and then I think this guy that worked at the label named George Maniatis, who was a DJ at a club in Vancouver, who I used to go hang out when he DJed when I was underage at this dance club, and I think he works for Apple Music now. But he came up with this idea: oh, maybe we should get that Sarah song like a, like a house remix or something, right? So they get this. Fade remix. These guys in Florida, and they do the house remix of Silence, and then that was it. And then all of a sudden, this just starts kicking off. Tiesto remixes oh, yeah, that it. It came becomes like, like a global well, Tiesto trance mix, pop it. Well, the Tiesto mix actually came, I think, two years after that first mix. But it just started kicking off like in a way that's hard to... It's still going. What was that like? Because you reached like a whole different kind of crowd. It was just super surreal. Um, but I will say this. Initially, what the initial thing that happened with the record was... The album version of the song got picked up to be used in a film called Broke Down Palace with uh, Claire Danes. It's sort of like, sort of like a like a young person, young female Midnight Express type movie, and that song became the lead song in the film. Like when the credits run at the beginning and at the end, and that gave the song tons of exposure. So now, all of a sudden, we're selling quite a lot of albums in America because of that song. And this is nothing to do with the remix. So the album is selling as on the that's, new. That was the Silence original. The original. Yeah. So this is rolling. I'm hearing it in restaurants in Los Angeles. So this is rolling along, and the remix kind of shoots off to the side, and then just goes beyond all of that. And it was just really, it's just surreal. I don't know how to describe it because you're sort of one step removed in the remix. You know, I can hear the chord progressions. You know, I played and everything, so I have that connection, but. So it's just sort of surreal, you know. You're connected to it, but it's almost like you're looking down on something else, you know. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I still live off this song, you basically. Do, is, this, <laughs> is this the track that it's like meant the most to you economically? Absolutely. Not even close. <laughs> so... Moving to delirium in a lot of ways is not a huge change. It's a change in atmosphere, but not really a change. Like we made the records basically the same way. So it wasn't really as radically different as people think. So when the delirium record started really taking off, for whatever reason, I just started getting a little restless. You know, by this time, I'd already produced Fear Factory, been working in the metal scene because they wanted keyboards. They were a, an adventurous metal band that wanted keyboards and sampling in their music pushed right up front. So, because after the remix thing did well, they brought me in. I go up to um, Bearsville Studios. I think it's Todd Rundgren's old studio. And we do the demanufacture record, which again, like makes a lot of noise in England. And I think influenced a lot of, from what, I, from what I'm told, influenced a lot of metal bands. It made keyboards okay. It made sampling okay. And, and Fear Factory became really, really big for a while. Yeah, I mean, we, that was almost like the, it was almost like the silence type thing. We, we did this record and then it just really just kind of took off a little bit. The demanufacture album, it kind of, it was just surreal being, you know, I used to always read music press and there'd always be that record, you know, that the critics go, yeah, this is the record. So when it's a record that you worked on, it's really weird. It's like, it's just surreal. You know, it's like this and it's always fleeting. It always comes and goes. You know, you, it, you get that hot spot, especially in the UK. A year later, they're moved on to something else. But it's fun while it lasts and it's exciting. So I already kind of started cultivating this kind of career in metal just by bringing my keyboards and those things I was doing and adding it to that kind of music. And it's... What's happening with Fear Factory now? Because... Oh, a lot of litigation. They, they're always fighting. Oh, a lot of litigation. Burton Seedle, the singer, has quit the band know. again. I don't know why those guys can't, like, just... I, I, once, um, I once went to Dino Cazares' place in East LA, I think. Oh, yeah, I, I was yeah. with this Swedish metal band called the Backyard Babies. And I they, remember they them. They were friends with I him. I remember them, So we yeah. went to Dino's house, and <laughs> Dino and his friends, they smoked so much weed. Dino they, doesn't smoke weed. He didn't? His friends do, but not him. Dino's pretty straight. Anyway, his friends bring out these like, gla- glass bazookas. Yeah, it's his friends for and sure. And one of us Swedes, like, we, we light a cigarette. And 
they go, hey, man, you can't smoke in here. You have to step outside. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. That's, that sounds that's like so California. Californian. That sounds like California. Um, yeah, so I got the metal thing kind of just, I had no, I didn't see that coming. You know, like the Fear Factor remixes do well. Now they're like, hey, can you come play keyboards on our record? I come and play keyboards on their record. They're like, we don't like what the producer's doing. Can you finish the record? Uh, and then that happens. And then we make Obsolete, the follow-up. We have the Gary Newman cover, which becomes another surprise hit. It drives the record. So that's going. I'm getting a lot of calls from people to produce. And for whatever reason, I'm not taking any of them. I don't I don't know what I was thinking in hindsight. Um like a few, like a few known bands, actually, and um, I'm just not taking any of it on. I want to go to a- Amsterdam with my girlfriend because she is moving there, and I want to work on my own music now. You know, and Delirium selling cr- really well, but I want to go do my own thing for whatever reason. So I go start doing this Conjure One project because my initial idea was to make, like, I, I went to Turkey. And I heard all this kind of Turkish pop music and I was just like, I really like this music. I want to do something kind of like that. So then I start trying to cultivate something in that direction, I guess, my interpretation of it. But then, you know, I go to network and they're like, kind of steering me more to be delirium-like because we know how to sell that. This other stuff might be a little too out there because the original demos are actually really quite different to the album. They're like all this filtery, distorted kind of weird beats with Arabic samples on top. And and they kind of moved me into a more commercial direction. And Delirium is selling a lot of records. So I kind of have this, not unlimited budget, but you know I get to pretty much do whatever, not realizing it's all my own money anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now I'm making this Conjure One record and you know, so this period of time, my career is sort of notching up a bit where now you're in this upper level of the music business where you're in bigger studios, you're spending more money, you have bigger labels, you have more people in your ear. So now I got to make a commercial record. So is that, is that when you collaborated with Shannon O'Connor? Yes, this yeah. is kind of, so by this time, the Conjure One demos had circulated because I signed to, I signed a publishing deal on the strength of silence to a company called Zomba, which was where Jive Records was. So now I'm in the Zomba Jive, and Jive mostly put out pop music, but they have a couple other, they have a couple kind of cooler artists, but in general, they put out the boy band stuff and pop music. So they had heard the Conjure One demos, and someone in the company, there's also a film and TV composer management, someone hears these Conjure One demos go, hey, this sounds like something that'd be good for film and TV. I get flown down to LA. I meet this woman and she knows Graham Ravel from SBK. And she goes, I think you could do like what Graham does. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds good to me, right? So she kind of brings me into that world. I do like a little bit of score for a movie called Gunshy. It was some weird movie with Sandra Bullock in it. That was just one of those movies that kind of comes and goes. But the people at Zomba are great. They're like really proactive. They're trying to get all this stuff going for you. And in hindsight, it was probably one of the best companies I've ever been around because the esprit de corps was, was 
you know, kind of Roadrunner was a bit the same. Like everyone was into all the bands and making it all happen. Everyone's wearing the t-shirts in the office. And it was, they were even enthusiastic for Frontline, even though they're all metalheads. It was like really great. And so Zomba's got that same kind of energy. And, and they would always look on their roster first. So, you know, Fear Factory's going, Silence is going. I'm starting to get into film and TV. I get a phone call from someone at, at uh, Jive in New York that says, hey, we would like to talk to you about something. Um, we're going to fly to New York. And I'm like, okay, sounds good. So I'm in Vancouver. I'd come back from Amsterdam at this point. And I get flown to New York, put up in a nice hotel. I go down to have a meeting in this guy. I think his name was Eric Beale, I think. That's definitely a guy that worked there. So I come into this little tiny office in, in New York and he says, um, I've been listening to your records you made with Frontline Assembly, like Tactical Neural Implant. And I think this is exactly what we're looking to do with Britney. <laughs> and no I'm, way. Yeah, I'm serious. <laughs> and, and I'm sort of sitting there going, uh, what? He's, yeah, yeah. If like, if you just do what you do here, except you mix it with like Control by Janet Jackson. This is where we're looking to move her. And I'm thinking... Yeah. Still c controlled by Janet Jackson has some kind of industrial it's, it's vibe edge, to it. Yeah. You know, it's not that off. You no, know? and it's, so he's, he's sitting there telling me this and I don't know what's going on in my brain, but in my brain, all I can think of is this is a put on. Like, like you can't be serious, right? In hindsight, it's 2020, because when I look back, it's like, hey, they flew you out. They paid for you to fly. They paid for the hotel. Why would they be putting you on? But that's, that's what my head's telling me. And I think due in part because just before the meeting, I'm walking through the office and they go, hey, we want you to um, you know, meet someone. This is one of our writers. This is Max Martin. So, hey, how's it going? I, shake, I see Max, I shake his hand. And just that little encounter is honestly what threw me off. So I have this meeting and he's like, you don't need to worry about vocals, lyrics, just work on tracks. We'll figure that other part out. Just send us a bunch of tracks. All right. I still don't take this, I, I don't, it's hard to explain like what I was thinking. I was just like, I couldn't accept this as reality. I'm like, this can't be real. You know, I'm like from the East Vancouver in some crappy little place. And like, this just doesn't, I just don't believe this is true. Anyway, I go back, I got a little studio set up. All I can think about is Max Martin. I start listening to Max Martin's music and I'm start psyching myself out. I'm like, I can't do this. I can't do what Max does. There's like, I can't do that. I start working on some terrible track where I'm trying to be poppy and melodic. It's just garbage. I can't send that. That's terrible. You know what? I can't do this. I can't do this. I don't send them any music. Fast forward like about four years. I'm at a, uh, my wife's uh, niece's birthday party in Los Angeles. And this song is playing called Peace of Me by Britney Spears with this like simple electro track. And then I almost had a breakdown right on the spot. I'm like, oh man, yeah, now I get it. I could have done that. <laughs> it was one of the most like ridiculous moments of my entire music career, like where I'm like, oh, like how did I not figure this out? That's, because that's a pretty great song too. Where was she, she works with the- uh, It was Sweets, yeah. Yeah, Klaus Olund and Robin is on that track. I mean, when I heard this like kind of like almost gold frappy track, I was thinking, man, I could have just sent them some electro stuff. I could have figured it out. I don't know why I 
the whole Max Martin thing kind of got in my head and I couldn't I couldn't get it out. It's, it's fascinating kept... how, how her camp reached out to like alternative artists because I know that they also spoke to James Murphy from LCD Sound System yeah. and asked him if he had any ideas for Britney. They said virtually the same thing that, well, we think that LCD Sound System might be the direction that Britney wants to head in. Yeah, it's it's... I mean, on one hand, maybe it's good I didn't do it because maybe it wouldn't have been cool. But on the other hand, it's like, what a, what a missed opportunity. And that story is 100% unembellished. I, I don't know what I was thinking. I regret it. it even if it would have been uncool at the time, I think it would have got cooler over time. <laughs> but so, so you got to work with Sinead O'Connor instead. That's- well, that was actually via Rick Knowles who produced Lana and all that stuff. So, cause when I was in LA, because of the whole, because when you have a, a successful record, things start coming together, you know, silence is going well. And also because the Delirium record was, you know, selling quite well, it was on Billboard, New Age charts. Around the time the Britney thing happened, or maybe slightly after the Britney thing happened, I get a phone call and it's David Foster the big, you know, mega producer who did like Whitney Houston and all that. And it's David Foster on the phone. He goes, Reese, this is David Foster, another Canadian. <laughs> he goes, like what that delirium stuff. Uh, we we got this new artist. We w- want this kind of stuff on him. You know, are you available? And I'm like, yeah, okay, great. So this is Josh Groban. So they send me a couple tracks that are actually really complicated, like time signature changes, almost more classical uh, uh, contemporary classical style opera, like Bocelli kind of. And so, but they have it mapped out in the computer so it's easier to work on. So I do programming for this new artist called Josh Groban, who's kind of like an opera type singer. So this is after the Britney Spears brain meltdown. So now I'm finally thinking, I don't know what to do on this. I'll just do what I think is cool, which is what I should have done before. But this one, I do that. They like it. Okay, great. Then they say, we want you to produce two songs. And I'm like, okay. Not really thinking much because he's an unknown artist. So I produce one song on there. No, two songs. One was from Cirque du Soleil called Let Me Fall. And the other one was like some, you know, like a adult contemporary classical thing called Canto a la Vita. And so David Foster is kind of overseeing the whole thing. So I get to work with David Foster, which to be honest... It's kind of the highlight, you know, because he's like the top tier. I'm at his mansion in Malibu in his studio. And then he comes in and goes, we're going to make this a duet with the cores. I'm like, okay, all right. So now we got the cores. So, and just, this is all very surreal. Now I'm like, all of a sudden, this is like now normal. This world is now normal. And we work on this, this, you know, like a, a record they played at like Olive Gardens in America, basically, right? And they have me do this uh, PBS special where I'm playing the song on the stage. That's, I mean, it's on YouTube somewhere. And um, so that was... You played that with the chorus? The, with the chorus. No, yeah, yeah. The, one, of the, one of the chorus came and sang. And um, yeah, so that was super surreal because David Foster said, I like the delirium vibes. I want to bring this into the record. And so, and honestly, that's probably the biggest record I've worked on. Speaking yeah. of surreal TV performances that you've done, I saw this clip with uh, you 
and Ronnie Size, the, oh, yes. the, the British jungle producer, <laughs> and Cypress Hill yes. on Jay Leno. Yes. Together. <laughs> That's around the same time. How, how this, did that happen? Well, all this, all of the stuff I'm describing, I moved to Los Angeles in 2000, and this is kind of when all this stuff was going on. I, I had the metal thing with Fear Factory. I had silence going, and I'm working on Conjure One. I just blew off Britney Spears' producers or A&R people. Now I'm with David Foster working on this thing. So this is all going on at the same time. Christian, the bassist from Fear Factory, had been playing live upright bass for Cypress Hill. So he was like, hey, we need another keyboard player. Can you come and do this? So I just, just one little thing. I Because there, there was so much going on at the time. This is just one of those little things we squeezed in there. Just had to spend a few days with Cypress Hill and Ronnie and rehearse playing a couple samples. So it was, it was a real like, whirlwind time of stuff going on. And um, so when I'm making the, the Josh Groban thing now is coming together and that's coming out. And now because I've worked with Josh and because of Delirium, songwriters in LA are like, hey, uh, maybe we should write something. Cause there's like people that just do songwriting and then pitch it. So I'm kind of getting in this sort of different circle. And that's where I met uh, this guy named Billy Steinberg who wrote like a virgin and true colors. And he's like, maybe we should try some music. And we wrote a couple songs for the Conjure One record. And they pitched me a couple songs they had. One of them was called Sleep. One of them was called Tears from the Moon. And I'd never really done something like that before where you do like, it's very old fashioned where a songwriter has a song and then you do your version of it. It's sort of like what people in the 50s and 60s did a little bit. And so I thought, yeah, let's let's do this. And I thought they were nice songs and they would, the label wanted me to make the record more commercial. So this was a good way to do this. So the, one of the co-writers on the two songs Billy pitched me um, was Rick Knowles, who is pretty well known. He did worked on Ray of Light and, and now he does Lana and all that. So he heard I was trying to get a version of Tears from the Moon going and he sort of came in and said, hey, we need a big singer on this. And he made the Sinead O'Connor thing happen. He somehow... I don't know. He just put it together. He produced the vocal. And um, yeah. You've released two albums this year, I think. Uh, your very rhythmic and banging Collapsing Empires yes. under your own name. Yes. And then uh, Innovation Zero as Conjure One yes. with a lot of guest singers. Yes, it's very that's, melodic. That's the Conjure One style, yeah. Do you always know which ideas yes. will fit for a certain type of project? Or well, you... almost always, except when I was doing Con the last Conjure One record, I actually had a bunch of tracks that I put on one of my, I put out two solo records kind of back to back, Brutal Nature and Collapsing Empires. There was almost like companion pieces. And there was actually a couple songs on Brutal Nature that were meant for Conjure One, but they're just a little darker than normal. So... I kind of just, you know what? I think if I push these over here, it'll add some variety to the album. And they didn't really have vocals or pop structure. So I thought these can go over here, no problem. Because Conjure One was always meant to be like a pop structure. Like a, it was always like, initially, like I said, initially the concept was supposed to be like this dark Arabic tinged music. And then that kind of got pushed aside. Then it just became more like, like a moody pop project or something. And, um, you know, and then it was usually promoted via like commercial dance remixes. Again, like Delirium a little bit. It was almost like the uh, the introverted cousin of Delirium, I guess you could say. 
And, um, oh, another thing with Conjure One, um, when I was working on the first record is I also worked with this amazing artist called Poe, um, who sang Center of the Sun and Endless Dream. And she was quite big at the time in America as a solo artist. And that whirlwind time when I just moved to LA where I was working on so much different stuff, someone from Atlantic Records had talked to me about doing a remix for this artist called Poe. So I had the CD. And when I was in Amsterdam mixing one of the songs with Chunky XL, who is now a huge film composer, because <laughs> we used to be good friends when I lived in Amsterdam. And we sort of got into the composing thing around the same time, but he obviously stuck with it more than I did. And now he is, you know, pretty big name there. But we're mixing what became Center of the Sun. And Tom says to me, you know what? This song's nice, but I think it's better with a vocal. And then I'm like, ah, oh, I wonder who I get to sing on it. And I got the Poe Haunted CD sitting on the table. And I'm like, maybe I can get her. And then I call Atlantic. And the fact I got her to sing on my record is actually pretty incredible because she's this weird, regarded elusive artist whose first record was quite successful so the fact she came and sang on a, you know a bunch of my stuff is is something I sort of take for granted a little bit because it's you know, she's an unbelievable talent so I was really lucky on that one so let's let's listen to conjure one center of the song young That's the album where you can hear what it sounds like to spend $275,000 of your own money. This was during your <laughs> big budget this phase. Is, this is delirium success where the, you, I made the critical music business error of not realizing all the money they're funneling into your project is actually your own money or will be your debt. This is something most bands always go wrong with it's like the it's a tale as old as time in the music business bands spend like a million dollars on a record thinking it's just it's free the, like money. The, the recoup system, but it's like right? a big bank yeah. loan and so i was making this bloated record with i mean i would go into a big studio for like two weeks and not use anything and it was just it was really very foolish but i will say this the string section that was worth it. The record... Strings are always the most expensive yes. thing you can put on the record, right? Yes, that, that was a 25-piece string section. And my friend Chris Elliott, I flew him over from London to conduct. Chris Elliott, I call him the string arranger to the stars. He's done Adele. He's done David Gray. He's done Amy Winehouse. He's a friend of mine. He came over and did the whole thing. I mean, it was, it was a cool thing to have done, but it wasn't the smartest business decision maybe, but... Honestly, that record, it still, it made the money back. It still keeps rolling. And, um, 
But yeah, sometimes I think about it and it's like a little terrifying. It's like I just blew a house on this record, but I mean, that's rock and roll, right? One thing that I've always enjoyed about Frontline Assembly and Skinny Puppy is the way that you've used samples from movies, like yes. quotes from yes. movie dialogue. Yeah. And it's always such an amazing thing when you're watching a movie and then you recognize something from an old song. You know, it's a very special feeling. I remember watching Robocop 2 mm. and um, then that sample from the beginning of Mind Favorite yeah. comes on with the Jesus had days like this. Well, you know, what's funny is I didn't even know what I was sampling. Bill used to have a DAT machine set up under his VCR or something. And he would, Bill, Bill would always watch a lot of movies, a lot more than me. And he would just be recording them while he's watching them. And then he would bring the DAT tape into the studio. And so I was just going off the DAT tape. I wouldn't have the, I wouldn't even know what movie it was a lot of the time. So I'm just kind of scanning through, kind of going, okay, that's cool, grab that. And so I had like sort of a disconnected view of what it is. So when people tell me later, I go, oh, that's, I don't know. <laughs> it was just on Sometimes the DAT it, tape. It's almost as if the movie becomes better when you, you know, recognize a sample in it. There's this not very good movie with Michael J. Fox and Joan Jett called Light of Day. You know, where Michael J. Fox plays a rock, they're siblings. Yeah. They're bo both trying to make it as, as rock stars. And Joan Jett talks to him about how she feels, um, she's so rock and roll that she, and she says that she goes out every night. I go out there every night just to hear the beat. And that's something that Front 2 for 2 put in the song called First In, First Out. Oh, like halfway through the song, you, you hear Joan Jett going, I go out there every night just to hear the beat. Oh, I know what you're talking dun, about. Dun, 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 I wonder if, because from what I understood, Richard picked all the samples. So I'm going to have to ask him about that. That's a good one. I like that. What's next for you? Uh, I mean, I've been kind of doing sort of this, my stuff under my own name, which I guess is sort of like my interpretation of techno. I don't think it's really techno, but I don't know where else to put it. So I've been kind of doing that, playing it live. And it's mostly just because I like it and I enjoy the, the art side of it. Um, I'm getting back into doing some producing work. I got a couple production things lined up. Um, you went to Bergheim last night. I went to Bergheim last night. Well, I went because a friend of mine... Speaking of techno, I mean... A friend of mine... Um, whose artist name is Face Fatale. He's a resident DJ. And he was playing, he has a, a project called uh, Soft Crash with him and um, uh, a colleague of his. Um, they um, were doing a live set at uh, Sola, which is the, the kind of room under Berghain. And so I just went to watch them play and their, their, the music was quite good, but it definitely had some of the vibes of the old days, you know, like the uh, the old scene that I remember because they're they love all that music that music from that like late 80s industrial era so it was, Germany is always like the place for industrial yeah. music yeah you know. and so I went to watch that and I mean I like that place I like I mean I don't go there very often but every time I go there I have a good time I uh, I know people there I like the crowd it's a very varied crowd there's people my age there's young people there's a bit of everything in there so you never feel out of place because it's sort of like pretty well curated and I mean it's decadent and it's crazy it's like studio 54 of the modern era but it's 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 I, I get I get inspiration from there I like to go there I like to hear what's going on and and it's just, I mean, I don't stay that long. I stay two hours and I go on my way. I don't stay there all weekend like some people do. So, uh, 
Pablo is the other guy with uh, with uh, Hayden. I got to mention his name. I don't want to sound like I'm blown up. Um, I, I don't know. I just like it. Just once in a while. I mean, I live in a small town in Canada now. So when I'm at home, I'm pretty much just in the woods near the ocean. And it's like bears and, and rain. And, you know, um, it's a very quiet life. So I like to come over a few times a year and get my whole, you know, culture thing going and get my injection of that before I go back and just be like a, a dad in the woods with my little studio. And you're still in British Columbia. Uh, yeah, well, I lived in Los Angeles for like 15 years. And then when the COVID pandemic kicked in, I was um, with my son and it's, you know, the school was like almost non-existent. They'd be online for an hour. And then I was like, you know, I, I don't, I, I, if there's an option to this, I want to explore it because I, I don't want you to waste a year on this like half-baked attempted education. So um, there's a small town outside Vancouver called Gibson. It's like a coastal town where you get there by ferry. And I had lived there before in the mid-2000s um, in between L.A. stops, like L.A. and up there, then back to L.A. because my wife was from L.A. and she wanted to go back because she got sick of sideways rain for five weeks at a time. <laughs> so um, so I was like, schools are open up there. We should go back. And so now we're kind of set up in there and he's got a life and I don't want to move him around anymore. So, Is he into music as well? In sort of a weird way. I mean, he likes like UK drill and stuff like this. And and he can go over to the piano and just play something cohesive, like out of nowhere. But for whatever reason, I think he's rebelling against his parents because his mother was also a musician. Or his mother's a fantastic musician. She used to tour with Pink, the pop singer, playing bass. She used to be in this alternative band called Abandoned Pools. Her father is actually Don Randy, who was in the Wrecking Crew, who's on all the Phil Spector stuff. You're pointing at my yeah. Phil Spector so CD I have, box set. I, my ex-father-in-law knows he was Phil Spector's roommate. And then he's on Beach Boys, he's on Pet Sounds, he's on all that stuff. So that's another thing that is like when I... You know, I didn't realize when I met my wife, then she starts telling me and I'm like, you're, you're really? Like, so it was... My son's grandfather is playing the staccato piano on God Only Knows, which I think is really cool. And he's partially aware of it because Don did some piano dates in some like like jazz clubs in New York last year. My son went and roadied for him. And I think he's, you know, he's like, hey, Paul's dad, Paul Shaper's in the audience watching Grandpa. So he's, he's aware of it, but I'm just waiting for him to put it all together. <laughs> Thank you for coming here to Stockholm and appearing on my podcast, Rice Fulber, not Riz Fulber. I'm so sorry about that. It was a true pleasure to have you here. It was great to come. It was an uh, absolute pleasure. And I can't sleep with the shaking of walls at the Den här podcasten producerades av Daniel Bäckström för Leon Media. Reese Fulber var hemåstragen. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all. Jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.